good to be with everyone this morning. My name is Joseph Bianco. I'm the assistant pastor at City Reformed. And if you are new here, I welcome you in the name of Christ. We are glad that you're with us. And I would encourage you to stick around afterwards or fill out um, this form on the back. And that's a way that we can get to know you. You can uh, stick it in the welcome basket out in the lobby. We'd We'd love for you to do that. Our last two sermons, uh, we're on remaining steadfast in trials, and this will continue that kind of three-part series, ending the thought that James has for us today. So let's turn our attention to the Word of the Lord. It's found on page six of your bulletin, or if you have a Bible, this is the ESV, and I will read this word, and our response at the bottom will be, thanks be to God. You may dismiss children, sorry. Karis isn't just waving hi at me. (laughs) All right, let's read the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's a a story my dad would tell us uh, boys growing up. And um, I think he got this story from Monty Python, so someone can confirm this for me. Uh, I don't actually know that for certain. But he'd always bring this skit up when we wanted something, when we desired something. And he wanted to challenge us to think about why we desire this particular thing. So he'd start, one day, uh, there were two old English women in the countryside. And they were going shopping. And it was a fine English day, and they entered the market. And each went her own way, and then later at the end of the day, they would meet together to see what the other bought. And the one woman said to the other, Well, how did you do? And she said, I couldn't really find anything I wanted. So the woman returned the question, well, did you buy anything going shopping? And she said, I did. Well, what did you buy? She paused. I bought a locomotive. A locomotive? Why did you buy a locomotive? Well, it was on sale. So there's a story my dad used to tell me, but you know, there's a lot of truth behind it, if you think about it. If we begin to think about the things that we desire. I think that desires are often difficult to understand. We don't always know why we desire the things that we desire. And sometimes we think we know why we want something, and there's actually a deeper reason kind of lurking underneath. In the story that I just told... Um, that woman, she didn't really desire a locomotive, right? I mean, she, didn't, she doesn't own her own private railroad. She has no use for a locomotive. She desired the feeling that she got 
from buying something at a cheaper price. But she didn't give thought to those desires, and the desires ruled her. So James warns us here in this passage about desires and temptations. They're deeper and they're darker than we dare think. So he gives us some instruction about them. He also helps us to see how we can begin to change, how we can move from ignorance to understanding, from sinful desire to grace, repentance, and then learning to desire the right things. And here, here is what I want to propose to you that James is telling us, that unless we don't just see our sin, but we see first that we were desired by God, unless the grace of the gospel moves our hearts, that God loved us even while we hated him, unless we're impacted by his gracious will to have us, verse 18, unless those things happen, we will never desire him. In order to desire Jesus, you must firmly believe that Jesus first desired you. Desire Jesus, for he first desired you. So we're going to make three movements today to answer the question of how, how do we move from sinful desire to desiring Christ? So first, we're going to need to define and understand our temptation. Sorry, we're going to need to define and understand the, what is temptation and what is desire. Second, we're going to need to move from that to repenting of our wayward hearts, and then third, see clearly the grace of Jesus and turn to him. So understanding desire and temptation, repenting, and turning to Christ. So in order for us to understand what James is talking about, we need to begin to understand by talking about what is desire, what is temptation. So there are some things happening in the original language here uh, that are not as apparent to the English reader. The first is the word temptation in the Greek. It's it's parosmos. And temptation is the same word in this text as the word in verse 12 for trial. So when you read trial and temptation in the Greek, one's a noun, one's a verb, but they're the same root word. So is temptation and trial the same thing? Well, no. They're not the same thing, but they're they're more similar than you would think just by looking at the text. A trial is something difficult we go through, right? That's how we tend to think about it. Often our trials can feel external to us. Like having a newborn is a blessing. We just had a newborn, but it's also a trial, right? Now we tend to think of temptation as internal. Like I am tempted to eat too much ice cream. But let me ask you this. Cannot a temptation be a trial? Is it not a trial to reject the bowl of ice cream or to keep it out of the house? I'd argue yes. And so we see that these ideas for James are connected to each other. And it's foundational to understand because if you look at verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. James has in mind both external trials that we go through and inward temptations of our hearts that are themselves also trials. James has in mind both the external trials we've been hearing about in the last two sermons, but the internal temptations we face are a different kind of trial to us. And this actually makes sense of our experience, right, if we think about it. We experience both inward and outward temptations, even as we look to the Lord's Prayer that we prayed today. 
What does it say? It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So what is Jesus saying? Does God tempt us or does he not? How do we reconcile that with what James says in this text? So first, we have far too many examples of people being tried by God in the Bible to say that God does not try his people. In fact, it's clear in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. Earlier, James says God used these trials to refine and shape and mold us into what we ought to be, right? So in that sense, yes, God allows us to go through external trials to test and refine our faith, but does God tempt the inward heart of man to sin? Or does he use external trials to make us sin? And here James says, absolutely not. God is not the cause of your sin or my sin or even our temptation to sin. James tells us God is wholly good. Verse 14, he himself cannot be tempted with evil. Meaning, evil has no power over a perfectly good and just God. And therefore, he has no cause or reason to tempt us in that way. To cause us to sin. So then, who is responsible? Who is responsible for our inward temptations? And this is where we get dunked. Right in the metaphorical ice bath. God is neither the author of sin nor responsible for our sin. Brother and sister, we are responsible for our sin. One of the greatest temptations of mankind since the beginning, since Adam and Eve, has been the temptation of blame shifting. Right? Eve made me eat the apple. No, Adam, you ate the apple. Not only do we try to shift the blame onto our spouse or a friend or a family member, at our worst moments, we shift the responsibility of our sin onto a holy, good God. And when we can really step back for a moment and see that, it's far worse than we first thought. To blame an all-perfect, loving, gracious sacrificial, merciful God who gave his very son for our souls. To blame him for our sin is like calling evil good and good evil. But blame shifting not only happens because we don't like to admit our sin, but it happens because we fail to see why it is that we desire the thing that we are tempted by. And we do this Small movement where we take our sin and then we shift the blame so it's not on us. It is so easy to be defensive, isn't it? To just move my sin onto somebody else or onto God. So James, he turns the screw in a little further. And he says that the temptations happen when man is lured and enticed by his own desire. So this is a hunting and fishing language, and I don't just say this is hunting and fishing language because I love to hunt and fish. Actually, in the in the Greek, this language is often used to talk used when talking about hunting and fishing. So, lord here 
is literally like the lure you would use to uh, entice a fish to bite, right? The lures that we cast out. And enticed is the bait you would use to leave uh, for a, uh, an animal in a trap. So what is James saying? He is saying that we have bit the very trap that we bait. Or we have bit the very trap and the bait we set, right, for ourselves. We have fallen into the very trap, eaten the very lure that we cast on the line. And it sounds foolish. But that is exactly what is happening. It's exposing the root of the problem, our own hearts. So Jeremiah says this about the heart. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Do you hear the words? Not, ju- not just that the heart is deceitful, but that it's sick. It's broken. It doesn't work as it ought to work. It's in desperate need of healing. So then, if our hearts are broken, if our hearts are sick, if our hearts are deceitful, why would we assume that the desires of our hearts are only good desires? I want you to let this sink in for a minute. Almost every movie I grew up with Every Disney movie I grew up with, right, told me what? To follow my heart. That whatever my heart desires, that precious idol inside of me, that I should follow that. That's the message, right, we grew up hearing. That's the message we inadvertently might teach our children. And that is the idol of our age. We live in a day and age where to deny your desires is to deny your very personhood your identity. And I cannot say strongly enough what an utter lie that is. So I I love the way that Pastor Tim Keller says this. He says, you want me to follow my heart? What day do I follow my heart? My heart changes every day. Now I told you that James drops us in an ice bath here, right? It doesn't feel good to be told regarding our temptations that we are the reason for our sin. But if we get this, if we can stop blame shifting, then we can move towards true hope and true change. Now I need to make a caveat here. The desires James has in mind are sinful desires, and I think that can be shown by the context of the passage. But could you have desires that are good? I'd say maybe. In fact, I'd argue that almost every desire Christians have is a weird mixture of sinful desires, right, and desires that are in line with God's will. So we need to do the the process of teasing these desires out. We have to figure them out. We need to ask, why am I desiring this particular thing? Is this in line with God's will, which is his revealed word, which is the Bible, right, or is it not? If not, I'm probably desiring this thing for sinful reasons. So after we've done this self-reflection, after we've brought our desires to him in prayer, after we have talked about them with our brother or sister in Christ, slowly we begin to see what that truly is. And James says, this is what it is. He gives a picture of McGee Women's Hospital, where babies are born, right? And he says, he says, That at that hospital, evil desires give birth 
to child sin, and child sin, when it has grown, gives birth to grandchild death. Evil desires give birth to child sin, and child sin, when it has grown, gives birth to grandchild death. And there it is, our sin, naked and displayed for what it really is, leading to spiritual death. Now, there's an implicit point that James is making without actually saying it. If you can see the sin for what it is, and see this, that we set the very trap we fall into, then there's a, a next move we have to make, right? And that's the movement of repentance. So I just want to spend a little bit of time thinking about repentance. I want you to hear the tenderness in James's voice in, in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James isn't mad at them for their sin. He is concerned for them. He's concerned for their souls. These are beloved brothers he's writing to, brothers he loves. He doesn't want to see them entrapped in their sin, and so he warns them, do not be deceived. How are they being deceived? Exactly what I mentioned to you earlier. They're being deceived to think that God tempts them to sin. They're being deceived to think that they might be deceived into believing that their sinful desires are somehow okay desires. In his call to not be deceived, James is calling them to repentance. Let me put it another way. The deceived heart is the unrepentant heart. And the unrepentant heart is the deceived heart. Having hearts that can wrestle honestly with our sin, to see it, to own it, to, to call it what it is, are hearts that are not deceived. So how do we move from deception to understanding leading to repentance. I want to give us just a few practical examples. So we are doing a family devotional the other day. We can go through a few books, and then we, when we hit Proverbs, we spend just, we take five Proverbs, and we just spend time thinking about those Proverbs. And this proverb uh, that we went through, 2111, reminded me of this passage. 2111 is, when a scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. When a wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. So the proverb is saying that someone who scoffs at their sin, who blame shifts, is going to have to be brought through far greater pain in order to change than a wise person. The wiser person receives it as instruction, and they gain knowledge. So repentance does the same thing. The man who is quick to repent is the wise man who will remain steadfast even when temptations or sin come upon him. The man who does not repent is the scoffer and only punishment is left for him. So many of you know that I I work to lead the men's uh, sexual addiction group, New Hope. And um, as an aside, we are very close to hopefully getting a group started for women struggling with sexual sin. Um, But leading uh, the men's New Hope group and having led similar groups during my time in St. Louis has taught me a lot about the nature of sin, temptation, and desire. So much of our temptation that we face, I think, is really stemming from a heat of lacking to listen to what God says in his word about temptation. So, for example, God in the beginning of Proverbs chapters really 1 through 9 God gives specific instructions to a son, father to his son. And at at one point, 
the son is tempted to sin with a prostitute. And he says to his son, he says, son, stay far away from her path. Don't go down the road to her house. Stay as far away as you can from it. And then he says, and this is repeated many times in chapters 1 through 9, do not forget my words. Do not forget my words. They are life and they are light to you. Jesus is saying similar things in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. Or if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He's not saying that you should literally cut off your hand or pluck out your eye, but he is saying that if we need to take extreme measures to not put ourselves in the way of temptation, then do it. Take a fast from social media for a long time. From TV, from going to a particular bar, driving a particular way, maybe a break from people who are hurting your soul. Whatever that thing is that leads you in that path, would you not go near it? But you can't do any of that unless we first admit how sick our hearts are. And that's where I see actually real men change in their struggle against sexual temptation. Men who can recognize that they need help, that they cannot do it on their own. Men who admit they, they do desire the wrong things, and they want to move from desiring those things to right things. That they see what those desires are, and they call it what it is. Those are men who take steps from ch- to change from repentance to faith. And I think we have this temptation, right, to think that we are somehow stronger than we are, that we don't need to take tangible steps to have, or to have help. But I'd argue that truly strong people know their weaknesses, right? They take the proper st- steps to address their weaknesses. Matt often says, I staff to my weaknesses. Now, avoiding certain things, foods, activities, people, places, can be helpful. Seeing our sin for what it is can be helpful. But it's actually not enough. Repentance is not just the turning away of our sin, but it is turning to our Savior. Now, I want to give you what I believe is the key to doing this, and this is exactly where James goes in 17 and 18. So, Chapter 117, every good gift is, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Christians do not just turn from their sin, but they begin to challenge those evil desires in their hearts. They challenge them and then move towards desiring right things, the good gifts that James is talking about here. James is contrasting good gifts with evil desires. From the previous section, he's making a point that every good thing we have is not a result of ourselves. Every good thing we have is a gift from God. Do not be deceived. Every good thing we have is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And if every good thing we have is a gift from God, the question is how do we desire those things, not the other things? How do I desire the right things? And again, I think um, that we assume we should just want to love God, right? That we should just have warm fuzzies every day as Christians. We should always have a desire to pray, always have a desire to be kind and joyous and peaceful and loving and gentle. But I'd argue that just as repentance takes work, so 
We have to grow up into these things as Christians. We're not born with them. They don't just happen. They take work. They take cultivation. You are not born loving God. In fact, Romans says that we are born hating Him. To desire good gifts is the ideal picture of what a mature Christian looks like, and it's something that we should all strive towards, but something that will never fully be reached, not yet. We all have moments where desiring Jesus, desiring what he provides for us, learning contentment in him is really difficult. And there are some desires we have that, while I believe God does change, we may struggle with for years and years to come. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying there. The promise is, is that if we turn to Christ, if we seek him and not the other things, then by his spirit we will be changed. And our desires do change. But no one experiences perfection until Christ comes again and he makes all things right. So would you be patient both with yourselves and the work of Christ on your hearts? So I'll share a personal example um, with you of a sin that I struggle with that the Lord has been working on me for years and years and I think maybe the rest of my life. So I, I, I've said this before, I come from a, a non-Christian family, mom's Jewish, dad is Catholic, and um, you know how families all have uh, family rules, right? Certain rules that kind of we have as our families that define our families. Well, growing up, our family rule was to think that we were the best. That's what my, the rule of our family was. Not that we were inherently better than other people, but that when it came to school or sports or life, that I should define myself, this is what I was taught, by myself. And I should just assume I'm right and that they're wrong, I'm better, they're worse. That when I'm knocked down, tell myself I'm awesome and get back up again. Those are my family rules. And do you know what happened when I was taught that? It worked. I told myself I was the best all the time. I started to believe that. So even today, if there's a two-foot wall of steel in front of me, the Biancos plow through that wall. And deep in my heart was planted the seed of pride. And I watered it, and I nourished it, until the day I believed in Jesus. And he began the slow work of killing that tree, of bringing it to death. And I would read things in the Word when I became a believer, like, consider others more significant than yourselves. Or that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did, not account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Or if someone strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And it was the exact opposite of the things I grew up hearing. And since that day, I believe, the Spirit has been working on my heart. And I think it's something I might struggle with the rest of my life. But it's something I have also seen God change in me tremendously. I've seen branches torn down. I've seen lie put on the roots of that tree. The tree is dead. It's no longer growing. Slowly it's being removed. It has taken a constant movement of confession, repentance, and grace for years in my life. But do you know how I said earlier that to see sin and to hate it is not enough? 
It's not enough to just take action against sin. That's because without the Spirit of Christ in you, without that helper to, sorry, to lead and to guide you, we cannot change. There can't just be a dying tree. There has to be a new one growing in its place. I want you to look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Do you know what it means, of his own will? It means that the God of the universe desired to have you of his own will before you ever loved him. That he desired you first. And in order to have you, he had to make a way to you and that way was the giving up of his own son. He allowed Jesus to become the sacrifice for the sin that we constantly are running back to. The sinful desires that lead to death in brother and sister in Christ, they would lead to death were it not for the fact that Jesus died in your place and gave you new life. And if you know that, that he desired you that much, then city reformed, you are equipped to desire him. We call it grace. That's what it means to be saved by grace. The word of truth, the good news of the gospel is not just seeing our sin. It is seeing the magnitude of the gift he offers us, a gift that we did not deserve. So we don't just turn away from our sin. We turn to Jesus with love and desire because he first desired to have us. Throughout this process of repentance and faith, we actually begin to love the right things, to desire the right gifts. The greatest of those gifts is our Savior. And that's why James calls believers in Jesus first fruits. To be a first fruit was the best of the harvest, a portion given back to God as a sacrifice. God called Israel in the New Testament his first fruits. And because of Christ, all of us who believe are included in that. We are his first fruits, and by his spirit, we are learning to be his first fruits. The beautiful creation he intended us to be. So, what am I asking us today to do? I think it's helpful to really give thought, to give consideration to our temptations, to our desires to spend time praying over them, pondering them, confessing them with a brother in Christ, having that brother or sister speak that word of truth into your life to remind you of the gospel, to get at the root, expose, why is it that I desire this thing? To ask, is what I desire in agreement with God's holy word, which requires reading, which requires knowing his word? I encourage you with the... uh, The author of the Proverbs, do not forget his word. It is light and it is life to you. And then once we have those areas exposed, would we be quick to repent and then quick to receive grace? Because as deep and dark is our sin, so great is his mercy and love for you. We can receive these things because Christ took the first step. He first desired you that you would see the magnitude of the gift and turn to him. Lastly, maybe you've come here today and you're wrestling with your faith. Maybe this is the first time you're considering Christianity. 
Maybe there's a sin that you've been holding on to for a long time and you've longed to be free of it. Here's my encouragement to you. Do not delay this grace is offered now. He wants you. He desires you now. He asks that you would simply believe that what is preached today is true. And if you believe, the promise is that he will wash away your sin. And in place of that sin, he will give you new life in Christ. Let's pray.